Good morning. Our youth is currently working through a book this fall called The Irresistible Revolution. And the subheading is Living Life as an Ordinary Radical. And then the adults are working through a book called The Naked Anabaptist, The Bare Essentials of a Radical Faith. So last week when I was um, teaching Sunday school, I asked the youth, what does that term radical mean? Like, what do you think of when you hear the term radical? And uh, people said different things. You know, people said, well, crazy, <laughs> progressive, unusual, new. But in the Irresistible Revolution, claim, uh, sorry, Shane Claiborne draws our attention to the botanical meaning of the word radical, springing directly from uh, the Latin word radix. And it means springing directly from the root, like a radish. <laughs> So this idea of being an ordinary radical, or as Murray puts it, embracing a radical faith, isn't necessarily aiming at being unusual or pushing the boundaries or being edgy or a little, a little crazy. It's about getting back to the root of things. And in his book, Stuart Murray describes his experience of uh, his fellow Brit, Noel, who's traveling through the countryside in Pennsylvania with a bunch of Mennonite leaders. And these leaders keep peppering him with questions about why there seems to be this burgeoning interest in Anabaptism in Europe. And um, they start to ask him questions about what does Anabaptism look like in a European context? What does Anabaptism look like without some of the cultural aspects of what it means to be Mennonite or Hutterite or Amish? And Noel responds, oh, you mean the naked Anabaptists? The Anabaptists stripped down to the bare essentials. So we're gonna be working at getting back to the root of things throughout this sermon series. And Murray explores these essentials of our faith by outlining seven core convictions of our Anabaptist tradition. Uh, and so over the next eight Sundays, we're gonna sit with each one of those convictions and Daryl outlined them for you earlier. And who better to kickstart a series on Anabaptism but a reformed Presbyterian. <laughs> I'm excited. So I want us to turn in our bulletins um, into the sermon notes. Um, and here you have listed for you the first of our seven core convictions that we're gonna be looking at this season. And I just wanna invite you to listen. I'm going to read through it. I want you to just listen to the words. 
Jesus is our example, teacher, friend, redeemer, and Lord. He is the source of life, the central reference point for our faith and lifestyle, for our understanding of church and our engagement with society. We are committed to following Jesus as well as worshiping him. Sit with that for a moment. Now I'm going to invite you to read it with me. Jesus is our example, teacher, friend, redeemer, and Lord. He is the source of our life, the central reference point for our faith and lifestyle, for our understanding of church and our engagement with society. We are committed to following Jesus as well as worshiping him. So if Jesus is indeed our example and teacher and that central reference point, and I love that image of the compass as we think about Jesus as that central reference point, uh, a pretty fair question to ask then is, well, who is this Jesus? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> And uh, our Colossians text gives us a really good sense of what the essence of Jesus really is. He's the image, the perfect visible manifestation of an invisible God. The author is saying to us, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's the sustainer. In him, all things hold together. Christ actively maintaining the coherence of the cosmos. He is the head of the church. And I can't read this without thinking of my big fat Greek wedding. Is anyone else thinking about that with me? Like, you know, they talk about how the man is the head of the family, but the woman is the neck. She can turn the head whichever way she wants. So if I were writing Colossians, I might even say Jesus is the neck of the church, right? He's the person who gives us our identity and our direction. And Jesus is the reconciling presence of God. It's through Jesus that peace is being restored between God and all of creation. He invites all of creation into harmony, restoring our relationships to one another, to creation itself, and to God. He is restoring shalom. So in terms of the essence of Jesus, this is what we're talking about. And for the first three centuries after Jesus' birth, to believe in this Jesus, in Jesus as the perfect image of God, the sustainer, the head of the church, that meant to suffer the wrath of the empire. It was a dangerous way of life. Because Jesus' way of life was a nonviolent confrontation of everything that the empire stood for. That's why they didn't like him, right? 
And so to claim Jesus as Lord and Savior meant to publicly denounce the empire. And that meant a lot of persecution for a lot of believers. And it wasn't the kind of persecution that we hear about these days. It wasn't that you couldn't pray in your school. And it wasn't that you couldn't say Merry Christmas. You had to say Happy Holidays, right? We're talking about bodies broken for this. Right? It, was, it was a risky way to live. But in the fourth century, that all changed. Constantine came into power, and he had a dream that said, if you put a cross on the front of your shield, you're going to win this battle. And he did. And so from the margins of society, Constantine brought Christians into the center. And it changed our faith dramatically in terms of our history. set in motion a process that would eventually bring all of Europe into what is known as Christendom. And in the society, the church was no longer at the margins, but at the center, it was the major landowner, a partner of the state and the custodian of moral and spiritual values. But while Christians were invited to the center of society, the life and ministry of Jesus remained on the margins. Because the church was now in league with the empire, right? I remember listening to On Being podcast and Krista Tippett was interviewing someone and asking them how he thinks of the church. And he said, well, you know, like, have you ever seen Star Wars? <laughs> it's not usually brought up on On Being. And uh, she's like, yeah. And he's like, well, the church often thinks of itself as like the rebels, but really it's the empire. And if you want to blow my mind into spiritual awakening, you give me a Star Wars reference, and it changes my world. And that made a lot of sense to me. The church became the empire. And so certain aspects of Jesus were given a front seat in that empire, and certain aspects got diminished. And having direct, or sorry, correct doctrinal beliefs became the preoccupation. And so what it meant to be a Christian during this time in history meant to believe the right things about Jesus. And Murray points out in his book that we can hear this even in our creeds. Did anyone have to recite any creeds growing up in your churches? Some of you, few of you, most of you not because you're men. <laughs> but in my Presbyterian church, every week I was told and invited to recite that we believe in Jesus Christ, his holy son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he arose again from the dead, right? We knew it by heart. But notice what isn't in the creeds. The entire life and ministry of Jesus, right? Everything that happens between being born of the virgin birth and suffering under Pontius Pilate. 
And Anabaptists thought, that was a lot to be missing, <laughs> right? Maybe there's something in that space between. Jesus' life, you know, it's not hard to see why it, it got kind of shooed out of there because it's really antithetical to the priorities of the human kingdom. And often Jesus' life is even antithetical to the established church. And to meditate on the life of Jesus means to look upon a Jesus who stops executions from happening, who breaks religious rules and traditions, who confronts the wealthy on a regular basis, who identifies with the oppressed and the poor and the sick, and who refuses to endorse the patterns of the state and the religious order. And so it makes sense that an established church prioritized the worship of some of Jesus, but neglected the most basic call that Jesus makes to his believers. And we can see it in our Luke passage this morning, when Jesus is moving toward a socially ostracized tax collector and he gives them very simple, clear instructions. Follow me. And in fact, over and over, Jesus makes this very simple, clear call to people all throughout the Gospels, to Philip on the way to Galilee, to Simon and Andrew as they're fishing in their boats, to Matthew, another tax collector, to the rich young ruler when he says, go and sell all that you possess, give your money to the poor, and then follow me. And we see it here again that invitation to Levi this morning. So after, sorry, Anabaptists find themselves yearning to marry orthodoxy or the right belief also with orthopraxy, the right practice. And the distinct feature of the Anabaptist tradition and the root of this question is the radical approach to discerning how we interface with that question, with what we believe and how it flows into our collective practice. And it's Jesus, our central reference point. Meditating together as a community, what does it mean to follow this person? You know, at our last kids' night, we were talking about loving our neighbors and following Jesus, and I compared it to the childhood game following the leader. Y'all remember that game? Anyone still play that game? It's a fun game. It makes me think of the song from uh, the old school Disney Peter Pan, you know, we're following the leader, the leader, the leader. We're following the leader wherever he may go. Right? It's a great song. I sing that song a lot around our house. It's Hannah's favorite. 
You know, the more that I think about this bare bones Anabaptist way of life, it's like jumping into the most epic game of follow the leader, right? Because we aren't just walking behind Jesus kind of mimicking arm movements, right? That would be ridiculous. And also, he's not here anymore. But we're engaged in a collective, radical investigation, exploring together, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? What was Jesus like? The questions these questions take us back to the source, the root, right? the Gospels, and encourage us to listen carefully to Jesus and learn from his example. So don't get me wrong, beliefs are important. They are. It's important what you believe. And worship is really meaningful but it has to fit within the context of this simple, clear call from Jesus. And it's really important that I tell you all that I've learned that in this place. It's what drew me to Anabaptism. And I don't know what happens in every denomination, but when I came to East Chestnut, I was plagued with this really difficult question. I was looking for a church. I was trying to figure out why I was looking for a church. And I was trying to figure out, like, how do you start to look for a church? Because, you know, in our culture, there's a lot to pick from. There's a lot of menus. And I remember having a conversation with my friend Brittany one night. I was like, gosh, I don't even know how to begin. And she said, Elisa, look for the fruit. And so I stayed because I saw it. I saw fruit. And a lot of people in this room are probably still grappling with the similar question, like what is it we are doing here? What are we doing here, here, in church? And we may not always be doing it right. In fact, often we're not. There are a lot of ways to approach what it is we are doing. But what it is we're doing, you and I, friends, we're following the leader, the leader, the leader, we're following the leader wherever he may go. Amen.